Smith with a track called Well I Wonder, taken from the album Meat is Murder. I am David Eastor and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, I'll be crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop. And this week's special guest will be even as we speak, all the way from Australia, because a couple of weeks ago I caught up with two of the members, Mary Wire and Julian Knowles from the band. So expect that interview, which is going to be broken into about four easy to digest little uh, sections segments and the usual quality playlist so to kick off the show i thought we should play a track from the band this is titled suddenly and it's taken from a john peel session from the early 90s
Anilta aimed a Mr. N Across the fields where I love begin The ears of the corn began to melt and swim 2020 vision, 95% dim Oh,
that's the Triffids and the track called Chicken Killer that uh, I believe is the opening track on their, I think, 1990, no, 1986 album, Born Sandy Devotional, which I remember going out and buying it. And I think it was that and The World Won't Listen by the Smiths on the same day. I was terribly excited. Anyway, and before that, we had our special guest. That was uh, Even As We Speak, and that was a track called Suddenly. That came from a John Pill session, I do believe, from 1993 and is now currently available on Emotional Response Records um, on Yellow Food. I think, yes, no, that's the title of the album, Yellow Food. Anyway, uh, this week's special guest is going to be Julian Knowles and Mary Wire from Even As We Speak. And for those who have been following the band, or might not be, but um, are curious, they are going to be touring the UK at the end of July, and there are tickets available to some of the shows, though some of them have already sold out, so never mind. But anyway, look, I've got this interview with them. I've broken up into five bits or four, I don't know. It was a long time ago when I put all this together. Um, and this is the first part of the interview which we're going to start with when I ask both of them about the beginning and the origins of the band. I know it's a classic opening question. I love it. A long time ago, 1985, uh, Matthew was making music um, with a couple of other gentlemen who are no longer with Even As We Speak. Um, they were a different kind of music back then, um, Not, not quite... Um, in a genre, you know, the, a bit more rocky, I guess. Or I can't even kind of explain what, what kind of music it was, but very different. And um, at, at one point Matthew decided, I think, you know, no, he's going to try this different way of making music, and that was the Small Fish in a Big Machine um, EP that we put out. And I was going out with the drummer at the time and, and Matt asked me if I wanted to come and um, sing on it because I think we were sitting around at a restaurant somewhere and I was just singing to myself and Matt said, you've got a good voice, why don't you come in and record with us? So I did and then um, I was very excited when they asked me to stay on as a permanent member and I just did kind of backing vocals and played one finger um, keyboard lines and um, we kind of carried on in, you know, various guises, you know, different changes in um, in musicians uh, over the time but Basically, when we decided to go and live in England to try and do music over there, um, the drummer and the bass player at the time decided not to come and only Matt and I ended up going over there and that's when we recorded Go So Slow. Uh, and we were, we were over there for a little bit, um, well, better part of a year, but we came back. Um, we didn't do live shows or anything. We just did some recording there and um, we came back and... Yeah, that's when Julian, not Julian, um, Rob and Anita joined. Yeah. And then I'll let Julian take over from here because that's when he came on board. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, can I just um, just mention one thing? Because at that time, this was kind of like the mid to 80s. And that's kind of, for me, that's when indie pop sort of exploded quite a lot. was kind of 83 around the sort of first Smith single and album. This is what I put it down to. And obviously at that time, we had become sort of passionate in love with... Um, any bands from other places. And obviously Australia had the Triffids and the Go-Betweens. They did also have Midnight Oil and Men at Work, but we don't really talk about them. So, yes, yeah, so we were a bit obsessed with the Triffids. So was there a bit of a scene, you know, from, you know, like the Australian sort of indie alternative sort of music scene? Oh, yeah, you also had it in excess, as if I could forget them. But, uh, I was, uh, you know, we were sort of, obviously, you, you were in one camp or the other, I think. You know, you were either into John Peel and the NME and indie pop, or you were just into MTV. So, obviously, you 
seem to come from that world of the John Peel and indie world. Yeah, but I, I certainly went and saw all those other bands as well. I was far more excited by the, um, you know, by the Triffids and the Go-Betweens. And, and I think for me, you know, before I started seeing those bands, I honestly just aspired to being a groupie. I was kind of like, that, that'll that be my place. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'd go to see the Triffids and Jill Burtz up there and um, there were so many women doing amazing things in music around that time. And um, and I just thought, wow, I can be on stage. And, you know, they, they were... They were amazing to me because of that. But also the scene was just thriving. It was just, you know, everybody was in bands and it was a very exciting time. What do you think, Julian? Yeah, I mean, I think um, actually there was probably um, a little bit less division earlier on between those sort of mega acts and the indie scene. I mean, the 80s in Australia was a pretty extraordinary time for for music. Um, And actually in Sydney it was... um, probably one of the most, you know, active times, um, well, in my living memory anyway. And I think, um, you know, a lot of those other bands like the Go-Betweens and so on, they moved from their hometowns, in, the, in which case, you know, that was Brisbane for the Go-Betweens to, um, to Sydney um, and based themselves out of Sydney because the Sydney music scene was just so, um, you know, it was where it was all happening. I mean, basically Sydney and Melbourne were the two hubs in the 80s and bands from elsewhere moved to either Sydney or Melbourne uh, eventually if they kind of aspired to, to anything. So um, so I think at that time there were a few things that were happening. One was that there was a, a lot of music venues, um, so there was a lot of opportunity to play. Um, so, you know, you could actually play three times a week in Sydney um, and you didn't have to be, I guess there were opportunities for bands who were just starting out as well. So you didn't have to be kind of well known to land shows. So it was a really good time for bands to kind of develop, I think. And, and it's probably no surprise that that's because or that led to a number of bands at that time becoming extremely well known. And in some cases, you know, getting to stadium level, like the NXSs and so on. Um, but I think we were more part of the, you know, what you call, as you said before, the indie scene, um, and that was kind of supported by a bunch of really strong independent labels um, that were usually run out of record stores. Uh, or, and at that time, those record stores were, um, yeah, and this is the kind of, I guess, relevant connection, they were also stocking a lot of imported indie music from the rest of the world. So you had a shop that ran um, its own label, but it also was a record store where people bought records from everywhere. Um, and, you know, we had, you know, airmail copies of the, you know, the NMA, NMA or C-mail copies of the NME and Melody Maker coming in for those of us that were keen enough to be following what was going on in the UK, you know, because it was pre-internet. Um, so it was a pretty interesting time, but... Um, so I guess connecting into, you know, the even as we speak narrative, um, uh, I was in a couple of bands in the eighties at that time before I joined even as we speak, but we shared a label with one of them, which was Phantom Records in Sydney. Um, and, um, you know, somehow through that period, um, the association with even as we speak happened with John Peel and with, uh, Sarah Records. And it was kind of at that period that, um, I mean, I had been producing um, records for my own bands at that time. Uh, and in the indie spirit, you know, a lot of people worked together. Um, it was, you know, very community-minded. Um, I ended up producing um, some of those um, early Sarah um, singles. 
And then we did Feral Pop Frenzy and I guess I had been doing a lot of playing on those records as well already, even though I wasn't officially in the band. But by the time it got to Feral Pop Frenzy um, and a decision to actually, you know, go over to the UK and base ourselves there for a substantial period, that was when I, I joined the band. So, you know, there was a sort of a series of different kind of phases, but it, it, it all kind of, you know, came out of this really active um 80s Sydney scene um which was a really exciting time to be a young musician and developing because as I say there was just such a an amazing uh array of opportunities and so many venues where you could play which means you can get good you know that's one of the basics about getting good as a band is actually to to do it a lot (laughs) and uh you know the more you do it and the more regularly you play the better you get as a as a band um yeah and and it was also a time in sydney where you could kind of afford to live very cheaply um you can't do that anymore um and so people could spend a substantial amount of their time on music um which i think was another really important factor was that you know you could live in the inner city you could play three times a week and you could devote a lot of your time to you know rehearsing or writing or recording um it was a pretty unique set of circumstances you know at that time and that was mary wire and julian knowles from the australian bass band even as we speak talking about the early years and um as i mentioned earlier they will be coming to the uk i think they've got six dates there are several a couple of those have already sold out but um if you want to know any more information if you google even as we speak tour 2018 you should find some more information about them anyway this is david easter on the c86 show um still several more parts of that interview to go so what i'm going to do is break it up with a track this is one of those ones i um remember sort of falling in love with a lot for many reasons obviously i'm sort of one of those people who veer towards the world of melancholia in a romantic sort of way and i just always thought this was a fantastic version of new order's bizarre love triangle by even as we speak every time i think of you i feel a shock right through
There you go, a little bit of pop perfection. That's even as we speak with their version of New Order's Bizarre Love Triangle. This is David Eastall on the C86 show a little bit later on. Um, I will tell you how you can contact the show. I know I do love the uh, suspense, but this week's special guest is even as we speak with the interview with Julian Knowles and Mary Wyan. This is the second part of the interview where we talk about, I suppose, serendipity and the way things come together. Because I just mentioned, because I just interviewed Steve Mack, who was in that petrol emotion, and he was desperate to be in a band. And uh, he was talking to the waitress and she said, oh, I know some guys you might have remembered or heard of them. They used to be in the undertones. Well, they, they're looking for a vocalist for um, their new band, That Petrol Emotion. And he just was like, yay, I'll have a go. And the rest is obviously history. And bizarrely, I think Mary's uh, experience as well is slightly similar. But this is the second part where uh, we talk about how she got into the band. Yeah, mm. well, and I guess um, for me too, you know, uh, you know, when I was saying that I was so excited to see women on stage and I thought that um I would like you know like to be there but actually I got um pregnant quite young my and had my son and I thought well bang goes that that's not going to happen so when it did happen um just from sitting in a restaurant and having a having a chat um to Matt um it, it was it was very exciting and you know at that point I was quite happy to be behind the the keyboard and just peeping I, I used to um you know apologize for absolutely every wrong note I made and <laughs> and it was quite um yeah yes. ridiculous <laughs> well it's quite interesting because I've sort of noticed with doing this show there's this kind of a, an interesting sort of five-year narrative that most bands have and it was interesting what you were saying Julian about sort of that period because mm. the one thing was that in the sort of 80s there was quite a lot of un- high unemployment and a lot of the people in their teens and probably early 20s there wasn't much else to do and you you know you were on the dole signing on and there was also something called the enterprise allowance scheme which gave gave people a year of being sort of on the dole but you could pretend to be a self-employed writer poet musician so a lot of people just sort of became just formed a band just because there was absolutely nothing to do but then found that you know they they eventually made a sound which was they found quite interesting and kind of curious and mostly they had to create their own sound because they weren't good enough to copy somebody else like Big Flame and bands like that um, and then they did the single they did possibly the John Peel show did the album did a tour and then things started to get quite tricky when they were doing the second album so how did your sort of story develop? I mean I think one of the things that was really interesting is that um, you know on the one hand there was very much that that kind of community minded kind of indie ethos that was that was going on I mean, you know, and and the other thing that I would add to that whole sort of ecology was, you know, universities, you know, in Australia at that time, university education was completely free um, and people, you know, really tested the nine or 10 year Bachelor of Arts, you know, they kind of took it pretty easy. (laughs) So, um, and, and, you know, there were, there were a lot of gigs and shows on, on university campuses as well, but, you know, I think. Yeah, it's a strange mix because I'm, I don't know what you think, Mary, but I mean, uh, my sense was, you know, it's not, it wasn't without ambition. Like, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of bands were, you know, I mean, I guess my, a lot of bands actually wanted to get to a certain level of success. You know, bands wanted to get played on the radio. Um, you know, they did like the idea of selling records. Um, and I, But I think it was actually really quite locally focused um, a lot of the time. So I think, you know, the this sort of the connection with the John Peel thing that emerged with even as we speak was a little bit out of the ordinary I think 
Um, I mean, it's not when you, on the one hand, when you look back and you say, oh, yes, you know, the go-betweens and the birthday party and the Triffids and, you know, a number of Australian bands had had made that connection in the past. But, you know, it wasn't like, you know, at, at our time, you know, when we were playing, I mean, I don't think there was anyone else in that kind of immediate period or amount, you know, time that had, had where the connection with Peel had fired off. So it was... Um, and I think once that happens and you go, well, you know, John Peel was someone, even for us as young people growing up in Australia, I mean, we all, you know, revered John Peel. I mean, his sort of reputation and his status was kind of worldwide, even in the 80s. Um, and he broke all of the bands that we, you know, kind of idolised. So I think, you know, it, that then kind of takes a turn for something a lot more serious, you know, and... You know, I mean, I think if you look back, you go, well, the band had gone to the UK more than once. You know, um, I was with the band for the Federal Prop Frenzy, you know, 93, um, you know, venture. But that, that was quite a serious thing for a band to do in Australia, for everyone to kind of give up their jobs, you know, which we did, um, and move to the UK and pursue music really seriously in a different country. Um, I think that, you know, when, when, when I look back on that now, that's a pretty bold move for a band to make, you know. Yes. Um, and, and it does speak, you know, as much as we probably didn't see ourselves that way with, with a certain level of ambition, right? It's like we're all, we're all going to give up everything we've got here and we're, you know, just going to go to the UK and we're going to absolutely do this thing, you know. Um, which so, is, you know, it, it's, it was a mix, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. well I was just thinking, because a couple of weeks ago, and it reminded me of that time, well, two things. I couldn't really imagine many indie bands from the UK, London, Manchester, sort of doing the equivalent of going over to Australia. And also I remember in the 60s, and a couple of weeks ago, I went to see Jermaine Greer, who was in Norwich, that you had people like Clive James, Jermaine Greer, and another art historian, I think his name was Robert somebody. Anyway, they all came in the 60s. Yeah. Oh, Robert, who's that's it? Yeah. So, you know, there was obviously something of, of sort of expansion or certainly the adventure of the Australian who was like happy to sort of just up sticks and go. And, and to be in a band, I mean, being a sort of writer critic is one thing, but being in a band where you've got to rely on other people, I realise that most bands, you know, quite quickly grow to um, have certain tensions and problems. So it is an impressive thing that people like the Triffids, the Go-Betweens and probably the Birthday Party and yourselves were, you know, like, yes, we got the ticket, we're going to London. There was there was obviously a really strong, you know, without speaking about our station, you know, it was a great tradition of Australians with any, you know, with any sort of um, aspiration in the intellectual or cultural space of getting out of Australia, you know. Um, I, I don't think that was because there was anything wrong with Australia. I mean, I just described earlier how great the, the, the you know, music scene was in Sydney at the time, how amazing it was, in fact. But um, you did, at that pre, in that pre-internet time, when you were growing up in Australia, feel that you weren't in amongst the main action, you know, um, the UK or the US or whatever, you know, they were much bigger places to be operating. So it's the... You know, it's the the big fish in the small pond versus you know the small fish in the big pond kind of thing. It's like you you want to chance your hand in 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 the bigger pond, but also be part of a kind of a scene that you've also followed very closely. Um, and you know, 
to be playing in and around a whole lot of bands that you have a huge regard for as well. So I think it was a that was definitely a part of it. I, I don't know what you think, Mary. And you know, and, and you you mentioned John Peel. I mean, I think that that he uh, liked what we did, kind of made you feel well. There's a chance here. And that was the second part of my interview with Julian and Mary from Even As We Speak. And um, and as I said, I've still got several more parts of that interview to go, but I'll be playing another track in just a second. But if you want to contact the show, you can. This is uh, David East on the C86 show. Just go to um, either Facebook or Twitter and it's just at C86 show. And I will be there. And um, I usually reply quite quickly. Anyway, this is another track by Even As We Speak. This is um, Falling Down The Stairs from there. I think 1993 album Feral Pop Frenzy. even as we speak with a track called Falling Down the Stairs from their 1993 album Feral Pop Frenzy and they will be coming to the UK with a bit of a um, an exciting package of various bands on Sarah Records and I'm not sure who else 
But anyway, it doesn't matter. That's just details. But they will, from the 20th of July, will be in Bristol. And then they're going to be playing Leeds, Brighton, London, and also Ripley as well. So, um, And that's on the 29th of July. So if you are keen to go and see the band, this is your chance. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. And this is the third part of my interview with Julian and Mary from the band. When we talk about the importance of the one and only, yes, you've guessed it, John Peel. He was so wonderful. You know, you know, we, we met him and we went to his house for lunch. Have you heard that story? No, yeah. I haven't. God, you went down to... So we went, we went to Peel Mansions and, um, and he took us out for lunch actually to the local pub, but we spent some time at his house and he showed us his room that was just stacked. <laughs> Wasn't it, Julian, just stacked? Yeah. All the walls stacked with CDs and, and tapes and, you know, and he was just talking about how he had to listen to all of it and, you know, even if it was not for long, he had to listen to all of it. He just was driven to and that at one point he had two boxes of um, tapes in the back of his car and um, I think his car got stolen or something like that, Julian, wasn't it? And part of him yeah. was, you know, oh, my goodness, these tapes, I didn't listen to them. And part of him was like, oh, well, that's at least two boxes I don't have to listen to now. Yes, quite. <laughs> I think, you know, I, what really struck me about um, John Peel was that he was someone who was, I mean, absolutely in a position, if he wanted to, to be delegating a lot of his listening to kind of, you know, assistance and just getting the the good stuff passed on to him. But what really struck me about John Peel was that he did all of the listening. You know, he absolutely listened to music all of the time. And that is how he finds all, you know, how he found all this kind of obscure stuff really early on and could champion it. I mean, it's incredible the stuff that he found, I have no idea how he found, you know, all of the stuff. I don't know how he found even as we speak. But one of the, you know, a, a story that I always remember or a moment that I always remember is that we um, were at the Phoenix Festival, which was one of the, you know, UK music festivals, uh, summer festivals when we were over there. And, you know, we had arranged to have a beer with John Peel in the kind of backstage area. So, you know, I remember sitting around having having a beer with him, just chatting, but like literally every couple of minutes we're there, someone interrupts, you know, um, and said, oh, you know, excuse me, Mr. Peel, um, uh, my band has just done a demo. I would, you know, I, I would love you to be able to hear it um, if you could, you know, and he was always incredibly gracious. He would say, oh, of course, of course, you know, like I'll, um, I'll put the cassette on in the car when I'm driving home and give it a listen, you know, thanks. And like, so after about, you know, an hour of drinking beer, he's got this, literally got this bag with about, you know, 10 cassettes in it already just from sitting there. Um, so people just were throwing music at him, you know, all the time. And that is not the stuff that he was seeking out himself. But what struck me was how gracious he was. Every single one of those people that came up and interrupted in the middle of the conversation and handed over a cassette, he was a complete gentleman about him. I and he just sort of had this respect for musicians, um, he, you know, he treated everyone with respect. You know, a lot of people would go, oh, you know, bugger off, you know, like basically I'm just trying to have a beer and have a chat with some people here. You know, this is annoying. But he didn't do that. He he, he um, gave everyone some attention and, um, you know, thanked them for the cassette and told them that he was going to listen to it. Mm. Well, I think it was through John Peel, wasn't it? He, uh, they, they heard us on John Peel and they wrote to us. We got a letter in the post with a stamp saying we've heard you and, you know, would you be interested in releasing some some music with us? 
and, you know, we didn't know much about Sarah Records at the time, but we were pretty excited that a label in England was interested in us and then we, you know, got to know a lot more about them. It was great. And obviously, you know, now, you know, it's sort of, it's be, just become one of those labels that as soon as anybody mentions the Sarah Record label, you know, we all just go, oh, my God, that's amazing. But at the time, I suppose it wasn't anything, it was just another label because we'd had sort of so many from the sort of the 80s that it, it was almost like, um, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it was just kind of interesting that, you, you know, the stars obviously lined up and you did sort of such a good thing to sort of sign to them because it, it has got that kind of cult status. So the other thing that, that slightly sort of trips people up in, in the world of music and creativity is, is kind of management and publishing and, and all that admin stuff. How did, how did the band survive those kind of tricky waters? Mm. <laughs> I didn't pay much attention to it. I just know that, you know, in all of the labels that we had, the kind of those labels Julian was talking about that ran out of record stores, you know, they were always run by very uh, charismatic characters who we all love dearly but who certainly, you know, we never saw any money from them and we never saw any, you know, any contract we had was never really honoured, which was <laughs> just part of the course. Um I don't know, Julian. Do you want to? It, it's it's a kind of a bit of a sad fact in a way that um, you know the the kind of communitarian and the do do gooder kind of reputation of a lot of indie labels um, doesn't bear out into actually paying the musicians. Um, you know, that's a, a very very common scenario um, because a lot of the people running the labels you know, uh, just putting the cash that's coming in back into their business and their stores. Um, and they weren't, you know, really thinking um, that the musicians, you know, that they needed to be paying the musicians. So, I mean, it, it, I mean, I think a lot of people involved in independent music, you know, in that era um, had that kind of experience because it was kind of before the, the kind of that end of the, you know, in the 90s, I think the independent music, scene and labels um, really professionalized themselves a lot you know I mean you couldn't you couldn't have labels like creation records and sub pop and stuff you know selling a bazillion copies not having proper contracts with the bands that they were working with and actually honoring the contracts you know but then you know you can see vestiges of the old indie system when you look at the movie you know 24-hour party people and you look at factory records and you look at you know, my understanding was that, you know, Joy Division or New Order, you know, substantially most of their money went into the failure of the Hacienda Club, you know. And so so there was this whole kind of thing where Indy had to grow up in the 90s to the point where it actually had proper fair dealings with artists and paid people and so on and so forth because it had scaled up to a point where, you know, it could not avoid doing that. Um, you know, there were very famous court cases of Stone Roses, I think, um, got done over with their first record contract and then ended up in court with, what was it, Silvertone Records or one of those ones, you know, it, it was quite a prominent court case and was released from their contract because essentially they weren't being paid. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, we were all so pretty naive, I think, you know. I mean, it was all back in the day then too, before the internet and before access to a lot of knowledge, I mean, a lot of bands really didn't have a very good understanding of managing copyrights, um, contracts, and all of the kind of technical aspects of of being in a band. And so, 
you know, a lot of that was just done on handshakes and agreements and with very blurred boundaries as to what was actually really going to go on when money kind of um, arrived. I think it's fair to say also that in the area of management, um, that it's the same thing. I mean, you know, I, now that I'm older and I've, I've, you know, been involved in music for a really long time now, I've seen what absolutely really skilled managers can do and, you know, that the manager is such a key part of the whole, you know, picture in any band's success. I mean, if you can make fantastic music, you can make great records, but if you don't have a good manager, you're absolutely dead in the water, you know. And so, you know, I think for us, I don't really know. I mean, things kind of just happened and I don't think, I mean, I think if we'd been a little bit more, um, you know, as I was saying, a little bit less naive, then maybe we could have made a few moves in that kind of area that were, um, you know, might have led to a, a greater degree of success maybe. Mm. Um, but, you know, you're, you are where you are when you're in your 20s and, you know, in the in the early 90s and it was a different environment to now. And, um, you know, I mean, we, we um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone feels too badly about it, but you do realise how how important that side of it was, um, and how kind of yeah, how kind of naive we were yes. in amongst them. But you know, we played a lot. So for, I'll give you an example. Like when we went to the UK, we just played so much. We played every single show. So we had we had a manager, uh, you know, that was also acting as a booking agent that was just booking us into absolutely every show. And so we would drive. We were absolutely exhausting ourselves just just driving all over, you know, England. And, um, you know, sometimes the shows were good, sometimes the shows weren't great, and you kind of thought, what the hell did we just kind of drive four hours to play this show for where we made no money or lost money and then drive home again and get home at three or four in the morning or sleep on a floor somewhere, whereas, you know, the modern approach to management would say, okay, don't, don't, don't wear the band out you know, be very selective in the shows that you put them on, make sure they've got breaks and, and, and you know, um, and, and, and focus on, you know, getting good, yeah, getting, getting good ticket sales and getting good deals and, um, you know, bringing some money in so that the band can actually survive and live and just not implode from exhaustion and uh, poverty, you know. Um, they, they, they sound like really basic things, but... Um, they're really important to the longevity of any band. You know, you need, you can't be exhausted and have everyone fighting with each other and everyone needs to be able to actually basically survive, mm. you know. I do actually um, remember when we first got when we first got to England and they gave us the list of gigs, I started crying. <laughs> <laughs> I think were Paul might have cried too. <laughs> I think Paul knew what it meant and, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but I, I, I mean, I, I did say that about, um, you know, the label. Sarah Records weren't in that, um, weren't in that bucket, you know, with people no, who didn't want a contract. Sarah, Sarah have always been very good to us and still, you know, um, actually give us money, you know, for, you know, each year. And so I, I just wanted to clarify that. Yes. But, they, they were not. They were not part of the management. They were not part of the stuff that Julian's um, yeah. talking about. And uh, yeah, it was kind of odd, I guess. We I don't even remember that we saw Matt and um, Claire that often in that 
no. period that we were living over there in 1993. They came to gigs that were close to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, see, you know, on that note, what's really interesting is that when we kind of landed with, um, you know, in the UK on Sarah, Sarah actually did have a really strong ethic, which was quite interesting. You know, they were, you know, pretty socialist, pretty, you know, um, very, you know, feminist, very, you know, and they had very kind of strong ethical positions around the fan base, you know, like what, you know, they, they, they hung on to selling vinyl and seven inches because, you know, it seemed ridiculous at the time. They didn't want to assume that all of their fans had CD players, you know. Um, but, you know, that's just an example. So I think, you know, and I think that sort of ethos, you know, that was there from the start kind of is still there, I think, as Mary was saying, that, you know, um, Claire and Matt are really um, respectful towards us here and they do send us money from the streaming, um, you know, and downloads and stuff every year. So they've kind of had an ethical, um, you know, framework, which in fact was probably a little bit rare at that time, to be honest. Um, yes. It certainly certainly wasn't within our sphere of experience prior to that. There you have it, a lot of details about the murky and interesting world that is the record business, management, publishing and all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, look, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and I've almost got to the end of the show. I've just got one more small part of the interview to go with the band, but before that, I think we should play another track. This is Stay With Me from another John Peel session.
and that was Stay With Me from a John Peel session by Even As We Speak and that's on a compilation that's come out called Yellow Foods the John Peel sessions anyway this is David Eastall the C86 show and this is the final part of my interview with Julian and Mary from the band when I asked them what they would say to their 18 year old self starting out in that interesting and murky world that is rock and roll or indie pop depending which one you want I would say a couple of things um Make sure that whatever happens, you've constructed the way the band works so that everyone enjoys what's going on. Um, I think that that might mean that you do things differently. And But you, if you want to be in it for the long haul, everyone has to stay positive. Um, and staying positive means enjoying being in the band and enjoying everything that you do. So it sounds very, you know, what's the word? flippant or whatever, but I think it's actually an essential ingredient um, in the mix. Uh, an unhappy band is not a productive band and an unhappy band, you know, doesn't have a, have much of a future. Um, the second thing I would say is be very careful about what you sign and, and um, you know, just be, be careful about your copyrights. Don't sign yourself into deals or don't sign away your publishing um, your rights are forever or they can be forever. So be very, very careful about that. And the third thing I would say is like find, absolutely find the best manager you can get, you know, um, because because they will make sure that it is doable um, and they will also be, you know, responsible for where it goes next, I think. Yeah. And Mary, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? Oh, you know, I think I'd just say do it all again, you know, <laughs> like... Um, even the bad parts were great and, you know, I don't, I really don't regret any of it and I'm kind of really happy where we are, we are now. So I don't know, um, that how much I would change. I agree with everything Julian said, but I'm happy where we are now being able to just make music that people still want to hear and, um, and not, and, and not, not feel like, you know, we want to get famous from it or anything like that, you know, that it's just relax into it like that such wise words from mary wire and also julian knowles from the australian bass band even as we speak and they'll be coming to the uk at the end of july if you want tickets i think they're going quite quickly so don't hang about anyway that's the first part um of the show done and dusted thank you ever so much for listening and like i said if you want to contact me you can via facebook twitter just go to at c86 show but anyway i'm going to leave you with another track from yes they're john peel sessions this is all you find is air have a great week
Don't touch that dial. 